Well, good morning. Welcome you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and I welcome those who are following along with us on the, uh, the live stream. It is the Holy Spirit who brings us all together before the throne of God. Now, uh, let me just, a uh, couple announcements. I, I, I keep forgetting to, to bring about it ever since we've had to COVID, but if anyone who is uh, visiting with us, uh, we encourage you. We have these green welcome bags we'd love for you to take uh, with you. And uh, also, if you'd like information about the church, if you'd like a call or uh, anything like that, we have, you'll see cards there in those chairs in front of you. We encourage you to fill them out. You can place them in the offering plate or just hand them to one of the ushers when you leave. And, uh, and then also, if you've been attending or you want to keep attending and so on, and if you'd like one of our nifty name tags that we have, just note that on the card. Or actually, when you go out there to the Welcome Center, you can sign up to get one, and we'll have it for you by next Sunday. Now, let's uh, prepare our hearts for worship. great to have Amy back, isn't it? Uh, from Psalm 30, verse 4. Sing praises to the Lord, O you, his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. And so we do come, our God, to, to sing praises to you, and we do give you thanks for your holy name. We thank you that we may come before you in your holiness by the work, uh, by the blood shed by our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that you will take this worship and by your Holy Spirit so work in us that as we worship you in reverence and in awe, that it will be a worship that is acceptable to you and give you delight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together, Holy, Holy, Holy.
Confession of Faith this morning is taken from the Westminster Confession of Faith and from chapter 5. Let us uh, recite together our faith. God, the great creator of all things, upholds, directs, disposes, and governs all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least. He exercises this most wise and holy providence according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and unchangeable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Let's pray together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And our Father in heaven, we do give you praise. Pray that we will honor and hallow your name, that you are the great creator of all things, that you are the creator, you are the great and only governor of all that exists because you have created these things, that you alone exercise completely of your own will, the providence over all that takes place, over all things. We praise you that this is all to the glory of your wisdom and power and justice and goodness and mercy. Truly worthy you are of all praise, of all thanksgiving, of all adoration. We pray, our Father, that we will honor you in our worship this morning, that we will honor you in all of our lives throughout our days. We pray for your kingdom to come for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for his first coming and for his establishing your kingdom and that we have this wondrous gift of belonging to this kingdom that is unshakable. 
that is immovable, that it is that which we can place our full trust in and be secure in all the troubles and the things that shake us in this world. We pray that we will be found faithful in the service of your kingdom, seeking above all things to be obedient to you. And so in that mind, we pray that we will do your will upon this earth. We will do your will not only with our actions, but that these actions will spring forth from a a will, from a heart, from a mind that is totally in tune with you. And so we pray for your continuing work of sanctification in us by your Holy Spirit. Cause us to be more and more like our Lord Jesus Christ. For as we become more like Christ, so we become more like God our Father. We pray that you would provide for us today our daily bread. Give us that literal food, that nourishment that we need, for all that we need for the the feeding, for the care of of our mortal bodies. But more importantly, we pray for your provisions for our spiritual bodies, that all the more that you will Feed us by your word. Feed us by uh, the very worship itself, uh, through the fellowship, uh, the ways that you minister to us by one another. Our Father, we pray that we may grow stronger each day, whatever happens to our bodies, that we will grow stronger in our spirits and in our devotion to you. We pray that you forgive our debts, our sins. Our Father, there are the the sins that we have committed just by failing to do. Those good things that you had brought before us. There are the ways in which we could have served our neighbor and we failed to do so. Ways in which we ought to have been aware of the blessings you gave to us. and, And we were oblivious to them. And then, our Father, there are those active sins that we have committed. We have done wrong. We have broken your laws. We have cheated. We have hurt others. We have been prideful. We have been jealous. And we confess these things before you. And we ask forgiveness, acknowledging that we, we know that we have the forgiveness that in, in Jesus Christ. But, our Father, we know that when we commit these sins that at times then we feel estranged from you. And as we keep coming back to you, we can hear uh, the words of a father to to his children that, that we are forgiven, that we still belong to you, that you still love us. And so our father, there's this this wondrous truth that even as we are guilty of sin, yet your grace abounds all the more. And we thank you for that wondrous truth. May we, our Father, be like you and be those who easily forgive those who seem to offend us. How trivial are the offenses committed against us We compare them to the offenses committed against you. And yet we will oftentimes harbor a resentment uh, harbor pride, and we pray for your work in us, that we be those who are generous to our neighbors. Lead us not into temptation. You know our weaknesses. 
all the more deliver us from evil, uh, deliver us from the, the lures, the dangers and temptations of this world. We make this prayer acknowledging that to you belongs the kingdom, all of the power to you is to be all of the glory forever. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we have the, uh, the, the joy this morning of reinstalling uh, three uh, elders uh, to begin another uh, two-year term on the church session, and I'm going to call them forward. If they'll come over to the front, if you'll face the congregation. Let me read from our book of church order about the position of elders. Elders are shepherds of the church. They are to protect their flock from the corruption of doctrine and morals, They must exercise government and discipline as necessary. They should visit the people at their homes, especially the sick. They should instruct and comfort their people and guard the children of the church. They should live exemplary lives. They should pray with and for the people, being careful and diligent in seeking the fruit of the preached word among the flock. I'm going to ask now... uh, you men, uh, Jim Hildebrand and uh, Kent Schumacher and Russell Murray, these uh, questions. Do you believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments as originally given to be the inerrant word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice? Do you sincerely receive and adopt the confession of faith and the catechisms of this church as containing the system of doctrine taught in the Holy Scriptures? And do you further promise that if at any time you find yourself out of accord with any of the fundamentals of their system of doctrine, you will, on your own initiative, make known to your session the change which has taken place in your views since the assumption of your ordination vow? Do you approve of the form of government and discipline of the Presbyterian Church in America in conformity with the general principles of biblical polity? Do you accept the office of ruling elder in this church and promise faithfully to perform all the duties thereof and to endeavor by the grace of God to adorn the profession of the gospel in your life and to set a worthy example before the church of which God has made you an officer. Do you promise subjection to your brethren in the Lord? Do you promise to strive for the purity, peace, unity, and edification of the church? And to the members of the church, do you, the members of this church, Acknowledge and receive these brothers as ruling elders. And do you promise to yield them all that honor, encouragement, and obedience in the Lord to which their offices, according to the word of God and the constitution of this church, entitles them? If so, then raise your right hands. Let us pray. Our Father, we, uh, we thank you for this office that you have given for your church, that of elder. And it is a high calling to be shepherds of your flock. It is a fearsome calling. 
And Father, we lift up these men. We lift before you Russ Murray and Kent Schumacher and Jim Hildebrand and pray for them now. We thank you for these men who have already, over the years, have faithfully shepherded this church. And may you continue by your spirit. Give them that uh, wisdom that is needed, those gifts that are needed, your strength, your grace that is needed. Uh, Our Father, not only are they to, to keep watch over their flock, but as your word has said, as these vows have said, they are to set examples. And Father, that is, a, a, again, a fearsome thing to be called to do. All the more may you protect them from the evil one. And so, Father, we, we thank you again for these men. Pray your blessings upon them in Christ's name. Amen. Wait, 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 wait. Don't, don't leave, don't leave. Turn around, let me make this pronouncement. I, uh, I now pronounce and declare that Jim Hildebrand, Russell Murray, and Kent Schumacher have been regularly elected and installed ruling elders to serve on the session in this church, agreeable to the word of God and according to the constitution of the Presbyterian Church in America, and that as such they are entitled to all encouragement, honor, and obedience in the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you.
be seated. I'll invite you uh, to turn with me, uh, either in your Bibles, uh, to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 29, or you will also find that passage in your bulletin in the insert. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 29. Well, are you worried about the way things are? Well, that was the case with the readers that our author was writing to in the book of Hebrews. They were looking about, and they are growing increasingly afraid. I mean, so much they're thinking about turning uh, turning back from their, their faith. And we're going to look here this morning to see how our author approaches this problem, how he tries to snap them out of that fear. So let's revisit the, the context for a moment for this letter. This letter, he's written it to warn these believers of the dangers of falling away from their faith. He's intending to exhort them, encourage them to endure, to carry on. And he basically has two tactics that he takes throughout his letter. One is to demonstrate the superiority of Jesus, of the gospel, of that new covenant, over the old covenant, over Moses and Moses' law. And he tries to show how the law actually foreshadows the work of Christ. The second tactic he takes is just to provide direct warning of the consequences of falling away. And he'll couple that with encouraging them to endure. And we saw how in chapter 11, he provides the models, examples of those who endured. So these two tactics, that of showing the superiority of Jesus, that of giving them warning, he will do throughout the letter. And he begins that all the way back in chapter 2, really. In chapter 1, he was demonstrating the superiority of Jesus over the angels. And then he opens up chapter 2 saying this, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape? if we neglect such a great salvation. As I said, in chapter 1, he had been proving from the scriptures, from the Old Testament, how Jesus was superior to the angels. And so then he warns his readers, look, if disobeying the message of angels had serious consequences, well, how much more serious it will be for those who disobey the message of Jesus Christ. Now again, he'll take this line of argument in the passage we're looking at this morning. In just the previous verses in chapter 12, he had given warning about those who are in danger of failing to obtain the grace of God, of those who by their disobedience were in danger of defiling themselves, of those who were like Esau, in danger of being rejected from receiving the blessings of God. And so he wants to make this point. Do you think that this could not happen to you? Well, 
let's go back and look at the Israelites, your forefathers, when they came to Mount Sinai. So now let's look at our passage here, verses 18 to 21. He says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Well, let me read here a description from Moses of that account that our Hebrews is talking about. It's in uh, chapter 19 and 20 of Exodus. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And no one can read such a scene and not be impressed with the glory, the, the awe, the, the power of God is displayed. How, how frightfully wondrous that must have been to, to be there at the foot of the mountain, to be near the presence of God and displaying this holy majesty. Even so, Our authors want to make another point. He wants them to understand that as new believers in Christ, they actually have a greater experience. So it continues on in verse 22 to 24. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now that is a rapturous depiction of heavenly glory. And so let's, let's break it down. Go back to verse 22. He says, but you have come. He's making the point that these Jewish believers, 
readers of Hebrew, that they have who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. When you, when you have come to this mountain, that happened when they came to Jesus Christ for their salvation. And he's trying to help them understand that more was going on than what they just see about them. When they came to Jesus, they have come to a much greater glory than their ancestors back there at Mount Sinai. Now he wants them to consider what all they have come to. First of all, they have come to a different mountain. They have come to Mount Zion. The Israelites in the wilderness had come to that literal Mount Sinai there in the wilderness. They, on the other hand, have come to a spiritual mountain, that of Zion. Now, what's the contrast that he's making here between Sinai and Zion? Well, first of all, Sinai was a temporary home of Yahweh. Zion, on the other hand, has the temple built on it, is indicating that it is God's permanent residence. Sinai is significant for a one-time event. That's God giving his law to his people and, and birthing them as his holy, sacred nation. Zion becomes the sacred home of God. And not only is it the the home for God where the people of Israel now meet him, but it is where people of all nations come to meet him. Let me read to you a passage from Isaiah chapter 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. And thus Zion, though it is a It is a spiritual mountain. There is the literal Mount Zion where the literal uh, city of Jerusalem is. But he's speaking here of the spiritual Zion. It is a far greater mountain than that of Sinai. Now he goes on to say what they've come to. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now does that sound familiar to you? Let's go back to chapter 11. What was it that Abraham was looking for? He was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. We're told again that he and his family desire a better country, that is, a a heavenly one. Now, Arthur is saying it is to that heavenly city that the believers have come to. You know, the Jewish pilgrims, when they would come to their festivals and they're heading to Jerusalem and they finally come and get inside of the the walls of Jericho, I mean, of Jerusalem, and they greatly rejoice. And he's saying, look, you have come to a much greater heavenly setting. Now, he then adds more to this vision. He says, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. 
You know, Moses is getting near the end of his life. He's in writes in Deuteronomy 33. He looks back to that theme at Mount Sinai, and he writes about it in this way. The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Sierra upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. Then he says this, he came from the ten thousands of holy ones. And he's speaking of angels. For Daniel has his vision of the ancient of days. And he reports this about that vision. A thousand thousands served him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. He has the vision of the angels who are around God. And what our author is saying, look, the new believers have come to the heavenly city, into the temple, into the throne room. And it is filled with this myriad of worshiping angels. And they are worshiping with those angels. And indeed, he gives that description here in verse 23. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. He's saying, look around the throne room. Along with those angels, there are those who have been adopted, who have been made to possess all the privileges of a firstborn son. They are those, well, in the way that John describes them this way. They're the ones who received Christ, who believe in his name, and as a result, they receive the right to become children of God. For they were born not of blood, nor the will of man, but of God. So we have the angels, we have all the saints. And then he notes there in the center is, to God, the judge of all. There is God on his throne. Now like at Sinai, we're told if you go to the book of Revelation in chapter 4, he's accompanied with flashes of, of lightning and rumblings and and peals of thunder. And these things depict his holiness, his position as judge of all. But this time, there's something distinctly different. Instead of a people who are cowering in fear, who want to be as far away from this God as possible, because what? Their sinfulness is exposed. We find something different. And he notes it this way. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. The firstborn are able to remain in the presence of this holy judge because they have been made perfectly righteous. And so far from exposing their sin nature, God's judgment now actually vindicates their righteousness. Now, how can this be so? Well, we continue on in verse 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, again, our author has already presented uh, these depictions here back in chapter 8 and in chapter 9. He has spoken of Jesus as the mediator of a better covenant than that of Moses. Because he has written uh, the 
the law, the righteous law, on the hearts of his people, meaning he's made them righteous. And just as the sprinkled blood of sacrifices were used by priests uh, to, to sprinkle objects and to purify them, to sprinkle upon the people, to purify them for holy use, so the blood of Christ has been sprinkled on his people so that they are now purified. So there are two great contrasts that our author has been making, really between the people of Mount Sinai and the people, his readers, of Mount Zion. First was that contrast of glory. As wondrous as that scene had to have been of the coming down of God upon uh, Mount Sinai, even more wondrous is to lifting up the people unto Mount Zion and into the heavenly city. That is a far greater splendor. But the next contrast is the one that's more significant. In that first scenario, you have God coming down and into the presence of the people, and the people are barred from it. They have to stand at a distance. His coming down creates dismay. And this concept will be institutionalized. There will be the tabernacle, which will then become the the temple. And all that signifies is that there's a veil. You can't go into that temple. If you get into the temple, you cannot get into the holy place where the presence of God is. And all those sacrifices we're really doing are reinforcing that concept of the dilemma of man. You can't just go before God. You've got to have these sacrifices continuously made because of their sinfulness. But in the second scenario, you have these believers, these people who are welcomed all the way in. They ascend to the top of the mountain. They enter into that holy city. They go into the temple. They go into the holy of holies, the throne room of God who receives them as righteous. And so our author is saying to his readers, in Christ, this is the difference, you're in Christ. You come not to a condemning judge, but you come to a welcoming judge. He is the same holy God. He has not changed. But what has changed is the change that he has wrought in you. Now that's an encouraging, isn't it? That is a comforting thought. Well, our author is saying, keep that thought. Hold on to it. And now I want you to think what it means for you to reject it. Look with me in verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth. Much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Now again, our authors talked about this. He's saying, look, he has described these folks who... You know, perhaps it's theoretical right now. Maybe it hasn't happened yet. But he speaks of those who have been enlightened. They've tasted of the heavenly gift. 
They've tasted of the goodness of, of God's word and the, the powers of this age. They have tasted the knowledge of this truth. But now, well, now they're considering dumping it all in favor of what? We're going back to Sinai. And he's saying, now think about this. What happened back then? Your fathers, they died in the wilderness after refusing to listen to God when he gave them his law at Sinai. What do you think will happen now to those who refuse God when he has spoken to them from heaven? That's what he's noting here. The people refused him who spoke from earth. And he's talking about God is on that mountain in Mount Sinai. If you're going to refuse him then, what do you think is going to be that you're going to refuse God speaking from heaven? All right, he goes on in verse 26. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Okay, back there at Mount Sinai, there was a little earthquake that took place. Now that's terrifying enough. But another day will come. It is the day of judgment when earth and the heavens will shake. And that is a far, far greater judgment. And so the implication for the readers is this. If you do not want to find yourselves shut out of God's kingdom when that time comes, take seriously the consequences of turning back. And so he wants his readers to not take this turning away from their faith as though it were a, a small matter. Well, you know, maybe, maybe I'll go back to my old religion, or maybe, maybe I'll try something else here. You know, there are different ways to God. No. There are consequences. And don't just think that you can just nilly-willy choose what you want to do. Now, furthermore, though, he doesn't want them, on the other hand, coming into a, a fear for their safety in terms of thinking, well, it all lies upon them, upon themselves. So look with me in verses 27 through the first half of verse 28. This phrase, yet once more, it indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Here's the point. To be in Christ is to be in his kingdom. To be in his kingdom is to be in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Even on that final day of judgment. And so, therefore, be, be grateful for receiving such a kingdom. I mean, far from thinking that they should be, well, you know, maybe we should leave the Zion kingdom and go back to the Sinai kingdom of our fathers of the Mosaic law. All the more they should be filled with gratitude that God has welcomed them in through Jesus Christ. Now, they might be feeling all shaken up right now. I mean, they're going through persecution. 
But that is nothing, nothing compared to being shaken up in the day of judgment. And so be grateful then. From that judgment, they are secure. And then he closes. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Where does all this leave for the believers? Well, it should lead them to worship God. To worship God in an acceptable manner. He is not to be treated in a flippant manner according to what kind of suits them at the moment, whatever, whatever is entertaining, whatever kind of makes people feel good when they come in. They are to worship him with reverence and with awe that's coming out of grateful hearts. That is acceptable worship. Now, why? Why this emphasis on reverence and, and awe and, and worshiping God and what is acceptable to him? God is a consuming fire. He burns up the chaff. He burns up the wicked. He burns up the flippant. That term, consuming fire, it appears, first of all, in in Deuteronomy 4. But probably our author has in mind Isaiah 33. In that passage, God has spoken of that day of judgment, the judgment to come, in which the peoples will be as if burned to lime. And then there's a response to this in verse 14. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? Well, the answer is given in the next verse. He who walks rightly and speaks uprightly. And then Isaiah next, in the following verses, pretty much what our author is trying to do here, he tries to lift up the vision of the people. He says, Behold Zion, the city of our appointed feast. Your eyes will see Jerusalem. And what is Jerusalem? An untroubled habitation, an immovable tent. He's saying, look, look up. Look, look to Zion, to that heavenly Jerusalem. That Jerusalem is untroubled. It is immovable because there dwells our Lord. And yes, he is a consuming fire. But he's also our, our king, our savior, our deliverer. He's our refuge. Well, let's turn and look for a moment to ourselves. You know, I think our problems that we have today, they're captured well in a, in a line in a, in a sonnet by William Wordsworth. The world is too much with us. And when the world is too much with us, it terrifies us. We become afraid of the terrors of this world, of the wickedness of man. And what our author is trying to teach us is two practical perspectives to take. Number one, get the right perspective. Be clear about the one great concern that all should have. We fear man when we should be fearing God. 
Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Our fears are in the wrong places. They lie with with the economy, with politics, with, with social power. They lie in what man can do. But man cannot touch the soul. And that's God's providence. And it is the soul that is eternal. It's the soul that can suffer eternal punishment. But here's the point that he really he wants us to know. As we think about that, realize that in Christ, we have eternal security. That's the glory of the gospel. That what is most important is that which is most secure. No one. Nothing can snatch us out of our Father's hands. No one can snatch us out of the hands of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And you see, it's, it's that understanding, it's that confidence that have allowed the saints to endure and go through whatever is happening in their age. It was the confidence of the Apostle Paul, who writes those great words in Romans 8. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, that's the new covenant made for us by Jesus. That's the benefit of belonging to his kingdom, that we are secure in him, and we cannot be separated from the love of God. And you say, hold on to that. And the second lesson is this. Look up. Look beyond this earthly, temporal existence to what is permanent and real. Again, that's what kept the Apostle Paul going. Through all of, all of his persecutions, through all of his sufferings, And in 2 Corinthians 4, after he's talked about all these troubles that he's had to face, he says, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Look to the heavenly setting on Mount Zion and let that vision take you through whatever trials you have to endure in this life. Let your vision keep you faithful to your king as you worship him in reverence and awe, as you glorify him in this life. And if there is anyone who is yet to turn to Christ, and perhaps you have, you have viewed the Christian faith in these terms, that of it's a religion of rules to kind of keep favor with God. Well, then lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes to the glories for what the gospel is really about. Turn to Christ. And if you turn to Christ, 
Understand that you turn to a kingdom that has a heavenly setting. It is the, to begin that pilgrimage that leads you eternally to eternity with your heavenly king. We give you praise, our God, for this eternal Zion, this heavenly kingdom. We thank you that in Jesus Christ we have been welcomed into that kingdom. Keep our eyes, lift them up upon our, to our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. We will glorify peace be to you and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Amen.